Shema, which began a couple of weeks ago and will continue for a few more weeks after this. Um, and this morning, obviously, I want to talk about context. I want to talk about why context is important. And when I think about context, I have a story from my past that helps me remember the importance of context. One of the first jobs that I had after, uh, right after Stacy and I were, were married was, uh, was working uh, for my brother-in-law in the construction business. And you need to know that before I started uh, working with my brother-in-law that I thought um, what we were going to do was you know, put on ties and sit in a, a, an office with one of those big slanted tables and look at blueprints and make important decisions like Mr. Brady on the Brady Bunch. Um, that's not what it was like at all. Um, my brother-in-law had just started his own custom home building company, and I was his first employee. And what that meant, I realized quickly, was that we were going to be doing a lot of the work ourselves. We were going to be hands-on, and when, when I say hands-on, I mean him. Um, he was the skilled builder. I was a construction idiot. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I, uh, my job consisted of things like taking the tools out of the truck, and then at the end of the day, putting the tools back in the truck. Um, in the intermittent time, I would be allowed to use a broom um, to sweep things. And I did a lot of asking questions and then a lot of apologizing for things that I had messed up. Um, one day when we were on a remodeling project, my brother-in-law put me with uh, the painting crew. And we were remodeling a home. And I was supposed to help the painters move things out of harm's way. We were going to paint a room. And... The homeowner's stuff was still in the room. So I found myself in the living room of this house, moving furniture out of the painting area. And then we found this closet um, that was full of stuff. And all the stuff needed to come out so that we could then, not me, someone else could spray paint the closet. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing this. I'm helping this painter empty this closet of its content so that we can then spray paint this closet. And obviously I'm, I'm tall. So it's not hard for me as we get to this closet, um, we get to the top shelf of this closet and we're emptying the items off the top shelf. It's not hard for me to reach in there and grab the things off the closet shelf. My painting counterpart was not tall um, and it was not easy for him to get things off the top shelf. And so what he would do is when I was, I would grab something off the shelf and I would go, you know, put it in a safe place. And while I was doing that and wasn't really looking, he would stretch and jump and nudge things off the top shelf and get them to fall so he could catch them. Um, and this was basically because he was not going to be outworked by the construction idiot. Even though I had height going for me, um, he was still going to keep up. And so I could see that he was doing this, but I wasn't going to say anything. I'm not my place. So we did a couple turns like this. And then... I turned around to watch him jumping up to the top shelf and nudging a stack of items off the top shelf so he could catch them. And as they fell, the top item on that stack caught my eye right before it caught him in the head. And I recognized it as a doorstop. Yeah. And if you're going, what's a doorstop? Um, a doorstop is a heavy object that you set in front of a door to keep it open. In this particular home, it was a brick um, and it was a brick that was covered with the needle point cozy, not a lot unlike this. And I saw it and I got to tell you, he's okay. So it's okay to laugh. He survived. But, um, 
this, this brick catches him right in the head. And, I mean, you couldn't have scripted a better pratfall. He went down like a comedic champ. And I was trying not to laugh. And all the stuff that he was in that stack fell on top of him. And as he's rolling around on the floor, expressing his displeasure and surprise, um, I start pulling things off of him to, to help. And I reach for the doorstop. And as I put my hand on it, his hand grabs mine. And he's got his head in one hand. And he grabs the doorstop away from me and looks up and says, What is this? And I could see he was very confused. And I didn't think if I said doorstop that it would compute. So I just went literal. And I said, It's a brick. And his eyes got even wider in surprise. And he says, A brick? And then this philosophical question that will haunt me for the rest of my days as he looks up, holding this confused, and asks me, why a brick? He had no idea why there would be a brick in the top of the closet on the top shelf. He had no idea why that brick would have a needlepoint cozy around it and look like a little square pillow. It it, it didn't compute to him at all. He had no context for this situation. And I know that's a bit of a stretch, but when I think through this, when I think through my faith, my spiritual walk, my relationship with God, my religion, my denomination, maybe even the Bible, sometimes I recognize that I have about as much contextual understanding of those things as my painting counterpart did of that brick. I don't always understand what's going on. His culture and context had not yet introduced him to a becosied brick in the top of a closet. Okay? And so we just have to, I have to remember, and this is a good story that helps me remember that. And that's, that's really what I want to talk about this morning is context. What should the context of our faith and our religion be? How are we supposed to make sense of our spiritual lives? How are we supposed to make sense of our religion, our denomination, or even the Bible. I think the first thing that comes to mind for many of us is rules. We think rules are the context. Um, And we're right to do so. There's a lot of rules. I mean, denominations, religions, everybody's got rules about what you can do and what you can't do, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's holy, what's not holy. Um, And there's a lot of rules, and they seem to make sense. They seem to provide a context for different things. Um, And and most of us love rules, right? We love to write them. We love to enforce them. Um, It might feel good to feel like we're on the right side of the rule when someone else is on the wrong side of the rule. And I don't mean to belittle rules or act like they're not important. They're very important. Rules can be a good thing for us. Okay, rules are meant to protect and preserve something that we hold dear. And that's not a bad thing. But I'm still not sure that rules should be the context through which we understand our faith and our relationship with God. I've learned from my Hebraic brothers and sisters that there are 613 mitzvot in the Hebrew Bible. Mitzvot is the Hebrew word for instruction or commandment. 613 in the Hebrew Bible. That's a lot of rules. It seems overwhelming. But I've also learned from my Hebrew brothers and sisters that those rules, that those 613 mitzvot are to be understood as part of a larger filing system. That all 613 of those rules can be traced back to one of the Ten Commandments. And all of the Ten Commandments 
can be traced back to one of two commandments. So we see this process where we go from 613 to 10 to 2. And that makes those two seem really important because everything else comes from them. And you may already know what they are because it's the Wi-Fi password here. If you have Wi-Fi in here right now. Love God, love others. Those are the two. Those are the two rules. And where do we get that? As Christians, we get that from Matthew 22. We have this exchange between Jesus. And it says a lawyer, but I want to tell you right now, it's not a lawyer like we think. And understand a lawyer in this context is someone who's a scholar of the law, which means this person was a scholar in the 613 mitzvot. He was a scholar of the rules of the Hebrew Bible. And he's trying to catch Jesus in a bad answer. And this is what happens. He says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So if we listen to Jesus here, it would seem that he's offering a different context. He's not offering rules as the context for understanding our faith. But maybe he's offering that love should be the context as we go forward. And the great thing about Jesus is he didn't just pull this out of the air. He was quoting the Bible. And we know this. If you've been around here, you know that this answer comes from the Shema. We say this in here. We sang it in here this morning. Uh, the Shema begins, Hear, O Israel. And it's called the Shema because Shema is the Hebrew word for listen. And that's all that's going on there. So it starts, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And it continues, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We add to that this instruction from Leviticus 19, which is at the end of a long section of how to treat each other. And it culminates in this verse, and it says in Leviticus 19:18, "You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself." So you put those two things together, and you have Jesus' answer to the question of what is the most important commandment, and the second is just like it. Now that scholar of the law may have been trying to catch Jesus in a wrong answer, but his question was begging to know what is the context? How do I make sense? Of my religion? How do I make sense of my faith? How do I make sense of this God? And Jesus seems to say the answer is love. That the context is that you have to love God with everything that you are, and then you love each other as you would love yourself. Jesus seems to be saying that if we took one of those 613 mitzvot out of context, it might not make a lot of sense. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe someone has questioned you about some rule in the Bible that seems wrong. You know, we pull them out of that context and they just seem about as normal as a needlepoint covered brick. But if we leave them in the context of love, maybe a larger picture starts to unfold.
Now, if something in you this morning is pushing back and saying, all right, Daryl, great, love is all you need, right. Um, I get that. I, get, I have a similar, similar skeptical voice that rises up into me that says it can't really be that easy. It can't really just be love, right? That seems too cheesy. It seems too easy of an answer. But let's look at the Shema again and see if we can find some evidence of this. I need you to understand that the Shema was and is the primary confession of the Jewish faith. Jesus himself would have said the Shema three times a day at least. All of God's people were to recite the Shema when they rose in the morning, when they walked along the road, and before they slept at night. The Shema was and is recited in synagogue before any other scripture is read. It was and, under, was and is understood that when you recite the Shema, you are taking on the yoke of the kingdom, which just means you are aligning your will with God's will. One of the ancient phrases that the Hebrews used to describe the Shema was that you were born again every time you recited it. Born again. That should resonate with us. That's our language, right? That you're born again when you recite the Shema. Theologian N.T. Wright said it this way. He said, in reciting the Shema, one is essentially saying to God and their community, wherever this goes, however this ends, I am with you. Wherever this goes, however this ends, I'm with you, does not sound cheesy to me. It doesn't sound like an easy answer. That sounds like commitment. That sounds like something that's not going to be easy to do. And the words of the Shema support that. The words of the Shema indicate that we do need to mean it, that we need to be committed. In the sixth verse of Deuteronomy 6, the third sentence, we have this. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. We have to mean it. We have to own it. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. I love the message translation. The message translation says it this way. Write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you. Get them inside of you. That reminds me that this is for real. That this needs to be something that I'm committed to. One of my rabbis, Scott Hare, um, has described the Shema as a series of sticky notes from God. Um, and I get that, okay, because uh, as someone who frequently receives sticky notes from people that love me, who are trying to help me to remember things that I need to do or know, I completely identify with this. Because that's really, it, it makes sense that God's saying, remember this. Don't forget to do this. This is important. Put it on a sticky note. And when I use that image... That there's this sticky note, st- series of sticky notes from God. Then I think about that, si- that verse 6, that third sentence. And I want to know why it deserves a sticky note. Write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you. Why is that so important? That it deserves a sticky note from God. And when I think through that, I've been able to come up with three answers. There may be more. I'm sure there are. These are just the three that have come up to me so far. The first one is that if I don't write these commandments on my heart, if I don't get this stuff inside of me, then what's the point? Really, there's no point to it, to my faith, if I don't have this context of love. If my faith and my spiritual life, my religion in the end is just head knowledge, it's trivia, it's some sort of religious checklist, then I'm wasting my time. 
This is not worth the investment if it's just going to stay up here. If it's just something that I know, but it doesn't change me or change the world around me, what's the point? There's no point to it. The Apostle Paul sums this up for us in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I am blessed with knowledge and insight to all the mysteries, if my faith is strong enough to move a mountain, but I live without love, I'm nothing. If that context of love is not inside of us, then our faith, our religion, our denomination, and for that matter, even our Bible is as pointless as a needlepoint-covered brick sitting on the top shelf of a closet. The second answer I've been able to come up with as to why this sentence deserved a sticky note is because if it's not inside of me, no one's going to care. If this isn't heart level, they're going to know, and they won't care. And we know that. We've met people that they talk a good game. They, they have the right words. They have the right arguments. But there's just something inside of us that knows they don't really believe it. It's not in their core. And so we don't listen. We don't pay attention. Maybe you experienced the opposite. Maybe you've come across someone with which you completely disagreed who you thought completely different from, whose worldview was diametrically opposed to yours, but because you could tell that it was inside of them, that it was on their heart, you paid attention. And it doesn't mean that necessarily you agreed with them at the end, but you could just tell. Something inside of you knows that they're for real, that it's written on their hearts. Paul sums this up for us as well in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the most elegant languages of people or in the exotic languages of the heavenly messengers, but I live without love, then anything I say is like the clanging of brass or a crashing cymbal. It's just noise. It's just noise. No one's going to pay attention. No one's going to care. The third reason is, is very similar to the second one, and that is if I don't have this written inside of me, I'm not going to have anything to pass on anyway. Scott Harris says it this way, if you want to leave a legacy... You have to live a legacy. I can't pass it on if it's not inside of me. If it's just ideas and words, there's nothing for me to give away. Facts, head knowledge, empty surface rituals, even sacrificial acts are pointless. They have no inherent value without a context of love. Paul says it this way. If I could give all that I have to feed the poor, I could surrender my body to be burned as a martyr. But if I do not live in love, I gain nothing by my selfless acts. Only those things that are written on our hearts that are inside of us have value. That thing that changed your world, that completely reshaped you and turned everything upside down, that is more precious than gold. That is what you have to pass on. That has value. Write these commandments on your heart. Get them inside of you. Deserve a sticky note because it reminds me that if I don't, then there's no point to any of it. If I do not have God's context, God's love inside of me, there's nothing of my faith or spiritual life to pass on and no one will care. It's not my words. It's not my doctrine, my ideology, my arguments, or even my beliefs that move people. It's the love that is written on my heart. 
One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, said, no one has ever been argued into the kingdom. We get loved there. If you don't know who Dallas Willard is, I encourage you to look him up. Amazing uh, biblical scholar, prolific author, and a beloved pastor. And this man wrote and said some of the smartest things I've ever heard, and a lot of them. But he frequently said, People will forget 95% of what I have said and what I have written, but everyone will remember how I treated them. That challenges me. I'm not going to write or say anything as smart as anything that guy has said or written. It's just a given. So I have to remember what's important. The reason this has a sticky note is because of that love. So if you're like me this morning, you may be wondering, all right, so now what? Where am I in all of this? Do I have the context of God's love? Is it inside of me? Is it written on my heart? What do I need to do? And if you're asking those questions this morning, I want to tell you, you've already begun. You've already begun the journey, and and you're on the right track. And I want you to know that it is a journey. It is a process. It is not a switch that we flip on. It doesn't say, stamp them on your heart. It doesn't say, print a laser copy on your heart. It says, write them on your heart. This is a process that we all undertake together and that we undertake with God. This is a journey that includes our mistakes. No one gets it right all the time. No one. And this is a journey that does not look the same for any two people. There is no one right way to get God's love inside of you. There's no one correct way to write God's love on your heart. And yet, even though we will all come through different paths, there are some shared truths. And the most important shared truth that I want to end with this morning is that this journey begins the way the Shema says it begins. It begins with our relationship with God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I begin this journey by working on my relationship with God. Now, I realize that may sound not as exciting. Fixing ourselves is not as fun as fixing other people. I find it much more interesting to try to fix others than I do to work on myself. But the truth is, I don't have the access I don't have the expertise to work on anyone else. It's just wasted time. The only person that I can work on effectively is me. I've learned from my friend who's the recovery pastor at uh, Pioneer Community, Chris Estes. He's sitting over here. He wants me to call him my armor bearer, which I'm working on. (laughs) He's a lot of things to me. I love him dearly. Uh, But he has taught me that this process of working on ourselves so that we can then be a blessing to the world is called enlightened self-interest. And I really like that. I like the idea of enlightened self-interest. And, and one of the images that I have of that is, why, why? Why does this not selfish? Why is it not self-centered to work on ourselves? Think of it this way. You've all been on an airplane, probably. If you've been on an airplane and your oxygen mask should drop due to a loss in cabin pressure... Who do you put the mask on first? Shout it out. 
yourself. Why? Because if you pass out, you're not going to be able to help anyone. Right? We have to put the mask on and get that life-flowing oxygen to ourselves first in order to be able to help someone else. Put the mask on yourself first. That's enlightened self-interest. Chris has also told me the story of all the AA organizations around the country after Hurricane Katrina. They, they started writing and calling the National Alcoholics Anonymous office because they were concerned about the AA groups in New Orleans. The concern was they've lost their meeting places. They've lost all their resources. We need to help them. We need to do things for them. It's a noble idea. There's nothing wrong with that. So they're writing and they're calling and they're emailing the national office saying, what do we do? How do we help? Here's the national office's response. The best thing you can do is to stay sober, go to meetings, meet with your sponsor, work the 12 steps. So should they ever ask you for help, you'll be capable of providing it. It's brilliant. It really is. And it's the truth. We cannot take care of others if we're not taking care of ourselves. We have to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing when he ordered this response. We have to trust that Jesus put these in this order for a reason. Start by loving the Lord your God with everything that you have, and then you can love your neighbor as yourself. Our journey to get God's love inside of us begins with us. We have to open ourselves up to a relationship with God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. If we don't, then we run the risk of possessing a faith that is not worth passing on. A faith to which no one will listen. We run the risk of placing our faith up on a forgotten shelf in a closet where it becomes useless. Our faith may very well be best described as a needlepoint covered brick. If that's the case, the Shema reminds me to undertake the journey of carefully removing it from the top shelf of the closet and remembering that it exists to keep a door open. As we open ourselves to a relationship with God, the divine context is written on our hearts. That love gets inside of us and it changes everything. And then it pours out of us onto a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray together.